Well, this morning we take a little break from our series in Hebrews to remember, recognize, celebrate uh, that it is Christmas Day. I think it's appropriate to celebrate this holiday as, as Christians, to remember the work that God has done for us, just as the Jews in the Old Testament remembered the work that God had done for them on a regular annual cycle of feasts and celebrations. These are our feasts. These are our celebrations. And uh, so this morning we turn to Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, another part of that great prophetic book, and uh, consider it, and the child who was born and who was given to us as God's gift this morning. So Isaiah, verses 9, 1 through 7, as always, this is the very word of our living God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Once again, so ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word as we come before it this morning. Let's once again join our hearts together in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time of worship that we have as we come before your word. We ask that you would bless this time, that you would speak to us, and that in speaking to us you would fulfill your own promise that as your word goes out, it does not return to you void that instead it accomplishes everything that you purpose for it and is successful in the everything for which you have sent it. Open our ears this morning. Pour out your Holy Spirit so that we might hear and that we might see all that you would have us learn from your word this morning. Make it a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, so that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, all this, as always, we ask in the precious, wonderful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. What did you get for Christmas? Did you open your presents? Some do it Christmas Eve. That's the tradition in my family going back decades now. Some do it in the morning when they wake up. The stereotypical kids waking up their parents. Let's go down and open the presents. Time of fun and joy and ripping things open and finding new treasures and little presents and hoping you got what you asked for. And yet often, and, and it comes up this time of year, 
for many, and for maybe many of us even here this morning, the holidays come at a time of, of sadness, of sorrow, some frustration, difficulty in life of, of some kind. And it's at this time of year from you know, Halloween to Thanksgiving to Christmas to New Year's, all these celebrations that people have. And in the midst of it, oftentimes we have a context of, of, of suffering and sorrow. And the holidays really aren't that fun. There's kind of a similar context going on here in the book of Isaiah. It recalls the time of the judges. Gideon the judge in chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Judges. A time when the Midianites across the Jordan gathered together with other peoples across the Jordan to come and attack Israel, crossing the Jordan, invading the territory, preparing for war against the people of Israel. With Gideon, 32,000 men gather to oppose the invading forces. But what we see as the story unfolds is that God wanted to show that it was He who was going to give them the victory. Not their own hand, not their own power, not their own strength. So as we read the story, first 22,000 out of the 32,000 are allowed to go home for no other reason than they're afraid. You're afraid, you're in fear, it's okay, go home. 10,000 are left. But still, that's too many. 10,000 can still claim, we did it. We accomplished the victory. So by a very strange test, how does a man drink water at the edge of the water's edge? The choice is made, and only 300 remain. 300 men against an invading force. (laughs) They're doomed, humanly speaking. But God indeed did show his power, delivered Israel by his own hand so that none of them could boast. He saved them. They didn't do the work. Does this sound a little bit like Ephesians 2, 8, 9? And now in Isaiah 9, centuries later, the people again are in a terrible strait in darkness, in despair. And God points back to that salvation he accomplished for his people on the day of Midian and promises to once again deliver them, but now on an even grander scale. The nation that God saved in Judges 6 and 7, well, it rose and it fell. It had good kings and it had many, many, many bad kings. And eventually they were sent into exile in Babylon for their continued, repeated, over and over again, disobedience to God. So now in Isaiah's time, and as we read in this book of prophecy, by the end of Isaiah 8, the people of Israel have turned against God himself. They're speaking with contempt of God and of their king. The consequence of this is, as it's described in Isaiah, distress darkness, the gloom of anguish. They are thrust, it says, into thick darkness. 
But again, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, God promises once again to show his power. Deliver his people with overwhelming power. And give them a king. And give them a kingdom that will never shrink, but be established forever. There'll be no end to its peace, and there'll be no stopping its growth. (laughs) And then God reveals the instrument, the tactic he's going to use to achieve this great victory. No great army, no legions of angels, (laughs) a boy, a child, a son. One who will change the course of history. Through Isaiah, God promises deliverance and he promises the means of that deliverance. A future son to be born. All the promises of God recorded throughout Scripture up until this point boiled down to one promise. A son who is going to be born. Just a repeat of the promises that have been made over and over again. The seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head, the son of Adam and Eve. The seed or son of Abraham through whom all the world would be blessed. The son of David, a king to sit on the throne forever. And then later, the son of Mary who will save their people, his people from their sins. The son of God himself. What I want to do this morning in looking at these verses is concentrate on just a couple ideas. First of all, the son who is at the center of these promises, and then how those promises, promises are summarized and expressed here in Isaiah 9, 1-7. The son at the center of the promises and the promises themselves. Let's look at the son who makes all these things happen. Again, stop and, and reflect for a moment on how astonishing This promise is of God and how he's going to accomplish it in a child. Unto you a a child is born. To us a son is given. And what is more weak, what is more vulnerable than a newborn child? Helpless, unable to take care of itself. Yet children grow up. A son becomes a man. And so will this promised son. Now children are born every day. What's so big about this particular child? Well, it's a son born for us, a son given to us. It's a gift from God himself to his people. This child is different because God gave him to us. A gift to be light, to bring joy and to be the source of an ever-increasing number of people set free from oppression. We'll look at those as we get into this later this morning. What does this son do? Look at uh, verse 7 in particular. There will be no end to the peace that this child, this son, brings. The son is going to sit on the throne of his father David forever must be his descendant, fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7.14. From the time his rule is established, and forever after that, there will be justice 
and righteousness. For 2,000 years now, since Christ has been born, justice and righteousness exist. You want justice? You want right government? It's in the Son and in His rule and only there. Looking forward to other places is a waste of time. Again, who gives this child to us? God Himself does. And there's something that is profound in, the <clears throat> in this passage in verse 7 at the very end. God gives us this Son, and He doesn't just give it. We kind of do this sometimes with our Christmas gifts. Oh, I got to make a list of things I got to buy for people. I got to buy these gifts. I got to go to this party. We're exchanging gifts. You kind of do it, but you do it half heartedly. At least for some people. <laughs> That's not how God gives this Son to us. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's the zeal of the Lord to do this for us. It's His ardent desire to give us this Son. He wants to do this, and he wants to do it badly. His deep, deep, deep desire is to give us a son and to fulfill the promises that he has made to us. God wants it, and he wants it deeply, zealously. If God wants it, is it going to get done? Can anyone thwart God? No. God wants it, it will be done. And He wants it for you. He wants it for His people. To you, a child is born. To you, a son is given. You can change that us into a you. It doesn't harm the text. What are the attributes of the son? Track back into verse 6. We study the Bible to learn about God, His attributes, holiness, justice, wrath that he doesn't change, that he's truth and light and peace. Here we are given attributes of the Son himself. Four of them described in word pairs. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are the attributes of the Son given to you by God himself. These are in in a sense, the collective name of the Son, titles that He bears. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And they encompass everything that His people might need, every aspect of our lives. <clears throat> because we people, we, God's people, need a ruler who is wise, who understands our needs. <clears throat> Excuse me who can guide us and lead us with wisdom and with understanding. God's people need a counselor. And in the Son, God provides a wonderful counselor. God's people need protection from harm, so the Son is mighty. But they also need spiritual guidance, so the Son is God Himself, mighty God. Everybody worships something, but we worship the true God. And we have the gift of the Son from that God, and He is mighty, and He protects us and watches over us. What else do God's people need? Well, we need to be part of a family. 
everybody wants to have a good, healthy family with good, healthy relationships. <clears throat> and God provides something in the Son that's a little bit of a surprise. A father. It's not a reference here to God the Father. The Son is everlasting Father. How do we say that about the Son? Well, think about it this way. We read in Scripture of the Levites, the Judahites, the Reubenites, the different tribes of Israel all called by their ancestors' name. What do we call ourselves? Christians. We are called by the name of our elder brother, the firstborn of our clan. He is our everlasting father, the first of this new tribe, this new nation, this new people. And this father never leaves, never abandons his family, but is eternal. He's an everlasting father, the everlasting head of our tribe, of our clan. What else do God's people need? They need comfort. They need peace. Peace with God and peace with each other. God gives his son as the prince of peace. In and through him there is now peace with God and peace with one another. Again from Ephesians 2. Out of two warring peoples, God makes a new man, a new family, a new household of God. So this son given to us, who he is isn't just a bunch of empty theology and spiritual attributes. It has meaning for us. The benefits are practical. Joy, freedom, salvation from sin, freedom from sin's influence on us and its consequences. Ours simply by trusting and believing, accepting the salvation that he offers. So think about this again practically. Struggling emotionally, you have a wonderful counselor. Lost and can't figure out which way is up or down, in or out, you have a wise, wonderful counselor. In him and in his word and through his people is the comfort and wisdom that you seek. You have it in his word. You have it in the mature believers around you who can give you wise advice and counsel. Are the gods that you are worshiping failing you? The God of a job, the God of a career, the God of money, the God of sex, love, food, drugs, alcohol, health, happiness. False gods of another religion, dissatisfied with their empty promises. You have a mighty God in the Son. Powerful to save you from trouble, from sin, to protect you. You have a God worth coming to worship Sunday after Sunday after Sunday day after day after day, from now and through all of eternity. Alone in the world, about a lousy family life, don't have any friends, no good relationships. You have a father. And in that father you have a family. And in that family you have fellowship and love. You have people who will cry with you, people who will laugh with you, people who will care for you. And let me say this, this family here is your family. And it's more important than your father, your mother, your spouse, your children, your brothers, your sisters, 
This family is your family. Again, a family who will love you, cry with you, care with you, laugh with you. Broken relationships, strife and anger, in situations where you're always arguing or maybe complaining or criticizing. Maybe you're continually worrying and fearful. Never forget, you have been given a son who is a prince of peace. His work and his rules, his laws, bring peace. They heal relationships. They take away worry and fear. This is what God has given to us. A son who has these attributes, but who has these practical benefits for us as his people. This is the gift God has given to you. Jesus Christ himself. Yours again, simply and only through faith. The child who is born, the son who is given. Let's look at the promises then that he brings with him. The attributes themselves bring great comfort, or should, but there are promises that go with this. Back up into verses 1 through 5 and look at the promises. There's three of them, I, I think. Again, remember the context of what's going on here and the promises that are given in this context. By the end of Isaiah chapter 8, there's gloom, there's anguish, there's distress and darkness. And it's even called thick darkness, if you can imagine what thick darkness would be like. Darkness that overwhelms and bears down on, on you. Verse 1 of chapter 9 recalls that gloom and that darkness, that anguish. The anguish of those whom God had punished in his anger and his wrath for their disobedience. Punishment was just. They deserved it. And now the land from Zebulun to Naphtali is held in contempt by all around it. Isaiah is referring to these people in exile who have gone out of the land of promise into exile in Babylon. Meanwhile, the land that they've left goes desolate. It's barely inhabited. The towns, the cities are in ruins, barely populated at all. But Isaiah is like the other prophetic books. Punishment comes, the wrath of God, but in that also a great reversal, a great change is promised by God. I will change your fortunes. I will reverse this condemnation and turn it into blessing. And it's the same thing here. Three things, a threefold promise. Light, joy, and liberty. Look at verses 1 and 2. The promise of light. In the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Where was Jesus from? Galilee. Where was much of his ministry? Galilee. From Galilee comes God's glorious salvation. And then the promise that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. This is Old Testament prophecy. It's in the past tense. A signal that the promise is so sure that it can be talked about as if it's already happened. God is going to pierce the darkness of the gloom 
and the anguish of the contempt with light, a great light that shines upon his people. Not just for his people as a group, a nation, a body of Christ, but for each one of us individually. Light shines from God in our own personal darkness of of sin, despair, sickness, sorrow, whatever it might be. Light shines from God. And God gives you that light in his promised son, Jesus, who said what? I am the light of the world. And we each have the privilege or even the duty to shine that light on the darkness around us, to increase the light, to chase away the darkness, and do so by sharing the good news of the gospel to those who are trapped in that darkness and in their own sin. The promise of light where once there was darkness. And there's all sorts of ways we can understand darkness, sin, lack of understanding, following after false gods, idolatry, Light shines and drives all that away. Who makes it happen? The Son, the child given to us by God. Verse 3 continues, Now we have joy. The nation is multiplied. Its joy is increased. They rejoice before God with joy at the harvest, glad when they divide the spoil. There's always songs of rejoicing when harvests are brought in from the fields. Rejoicing, glad, here we have food to last another year. Similarly, when God saves, there's great joy. When God provides for his people, there's great joy. When God shares with us the spoils of his victory, which he does do, there's great joy. So a a, a basic characteristic of every member of the people of God should be joy. No room for being negative, for being pessimistic, because God has saved you. God has provided the spoils of his victory with you. No more death. The promises of eternity with no more sorrow, no more tears. Life eternal, no more death. Death itself, the grave, is beaten. How does he do that? How does that light shine? Do you know God and his promises? Have you put your faith, hope, and trust in Christ as Savior? Well, then be thankful. Be grateful. Rejoice in God, your Savior. Meditate on these things and all that they mean because of Christ's work for you. And be joyful. That's the response. That's the natural response of the believer to the work of God for us. Joy. Glorify God. Enjoy him forever, right? And then verses 4 and 5 talks about liberty, talks about freedom. You've all seen movies or read books about the people who are enslaved and their arms are put on a long pole, carrying it along. Or you've seen cattle or, or horses with a yoke on them. With that yoke, they can be driven and led in certain ways. This is how Israel is. They're under a yoke. There's a staff on their shoulders, and it's the rod of their oppressor. And what does God say in verse 4? He's broken that yoke. He's broken that rod, just like he did back on the day of Midian. 
He did the work. They didn't wriggle out of it. They didn't have someone come along and free them. They didn't earn it by their obedient behavior to their slave masters. God broke their yoke. They're free to move. They're free from the oppressor's rod. Israel was captive in darkness and slavery. God is going to set them free. And no one's going to be able to claim the victory because God does it himself. And the victory is complete. Every boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Every single enemy utterly defeated and wiped out. Armies are not going to do this. Angel hosts do not do this. Again, this is going to be like Midian. It's going to be obvious that God did it. And he did do it in and through the work of his son. Now, our bondage isn't yet ended as we continue to live life on this earth. We look back to what God has done for us in Christ, but we look forward as well to the freedom, eternal freedom that God has promised, a freedom that we taste now, but don't yet fully experience, because we still have sorrow and frustration, pain. We still struggle with temptation and sin. We still struggle with darkness in this life. Our joy is broken by sorrow. Our freedom from sin is not yet complete. We're going to move forward in the book of Hebrews and see that the Old Testament people of God are commended for their faith. Their faith in in really just the promises of God. That's all they had. They didn't have the reality. They didn't have what we have, the fullness of Christ and what he has done. They didn't even understand all the details of what these prophecies were pointing toward. But they knew the God who made the promises, and they trusted him. They looked forward to that promised Son. But we who know that the Son was born, whose birth that we celebrate today, we know what He did. We know that He lived in complete obedience to God and to God's Word. We know that He died, not to pay for His own sins, but to pay for ours and for all of His people. We know that He rose from death and so conquered death and conquered the grave, conquered our great fear. We know that he ascended into heaven and now lives eternally at the Father's right hand. We know that he waits until his enemies are made his footstool. So we know the promises of God that remain to be fulfilled as well. We wait in faith, just like the Old Testament people of God, waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. We don't know the details. We don't know the timing. And so just like the Old Testament people of God, we have to have faith in the promises of God. Faith in the God who makes those promises. The Son is coming again. The Son who came is coming again. Christmas Day we celebrate His first coming, His first advent. But as we look back to that glorious day when the Son became man in order to fulfill the promises of God, we also need to look forward to the coming day of the Lord when the sun comes again. 
To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. God is the one who made that promise. God is the one who fulfilled the promise and gave us, if I can put it this way, the Christmas gift of his very own son. So this Christmas morning, could you ask for anything better? Could you hope for anything better? Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord, our Savior, our elder brother, our friend, Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the Righteous One. We thank you for all his work. We thank you for the work yet to be completed, and we look forward to its completion. Preserve and protect us until that day. Ease our pain. Shine light into our dark places. Give us joy in the Lord. Give us joy in the fellowship we have in the body of Christ. Give us peace. Peace in our hearts, peace in our minds, freed from worry and distress and sorrow. Filled instead with contentment, contentment with what you've given to us, content with the work that Christ has done for us, content and ready and looking forward to the day when Christ comes again. And may that day come and may it come quickly. Father, we ask it as always in in the wonderful, glorious name of our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the light of the world, our joy and our hope. Amen.